Hello everyone. Welcome to episode one of The Congo, Colonization and Conservation, a sub-series of Guerrilla Radio Show focused on more serious discussion than our normal episode structure and subject matter. This series will dive into serious and disturbing topics including genocide, sexual assault, torture, racism, and much more. While we very much hope you listen, engage with, and enjoy the series, we now would like to strongly advise our audience that they should listen to this series with caution as the subject matter may be triggering to some. As always, we're receptive to listener feedback, and if you think we've gotten something wrong and would like us to provide sources or fact-check us, please feel free to DM us on any of our Guerrilla Radio social media accounts and would love to answer any questions or address any concerns you may have. Alright, so we're going to begin this series with a lot of necessary context for our future episodes that we have planned, and to educate and inform you guys of what exactly we're talking about in those episodes. Now, this episode may seem very dense and heavy at first, and that's kind of on purpose. We are setting the stage for the rest of the series here. We will do our best to make callbacks to this episode in the future so that listeners can come back and get context for people, places, or events that we will reference throughout. But without further ado, we hope you enjoy this episode, and let's get started. The Congo River and its namesake, Congo River Basin, is the second largest river network on the planet, behind only the Amazon River and its tributaries on the other side of the Atlantic. With an average discharge of over 1.4 million cubic feet of water per second, enough water leaves the Congo River Basin to fill 1,020 Olympic-sized swimming pools per minute. The Congo River Basin has a unique geography. Shaped like a gently sloping V through Central Africa, it has many areas where the elevation rapidly drops in steps, causing massive waterfalls, some of the worst major river rapids on the planet, and areas of extremely deep and fast-moving water. The Congo River measures at 720 feet to the bottom at its deepest point. If the Congo River were in the Great Lakes region of the United States, it would be deeper than Lake Erie, Michigan, and Huron, uh, behind only Lake Superior at 1,300 feet deep. The Congo River is also notoriously non-navigable at many critical points in its course that have permanently affected its environment and human development along this course. The Congo River system, including its tributaries, is home to over 1,900 miles of navigable waterway. However, none of those miles provide access to the Atlantic Ocean that the Congo empties into. To provide context, the longest contiguous navigable river system on Earth, including its tributaries, the Mississippi, provides 3,700 miles of waterway directly into the ocean, stretching across the majority of the middle of North America and connecting over 100 million Americans directly to the sea. If we were to replace the Mississippi with the Congo, you wouldn't even be able to make it from the mouth of the river in New Orleans to Baton Rouge, a mere 87 miles of river away. This geographic difference has led to a different type of human development along the river, with societies inside the riverine network having no feasible way, historically, of trading or making contact with those outside of the basin. The Congo has long been an independent and radically differently developed area of the world. With much of the pre-Kingdom of Congo history lost to the ages due to a lack of written record, what we know via oral histories and later writings is that the Gulf of Guinea, that is, the land along the Atlantic near the outlet of the Congo River in Western Africa, was a land occupied by the mid-12th century by many small polities, not unlike the Greek city-states of the classical period. These small kingdoms, city-states, and fiefs prospered, with many of them touching upon that short 85-mile navigable stretch of the Congo River itself at some point or another. 
While the interior was largely unexplored by even the coastal kingdoms outside of trade routes for materials that could only come from the interior, we know by genetic testing and oral histories that this area was also inhabited by a myriad of Bantu fiefdoms and tribes, whose populations will be integral to our story later. For context, the Bantu people are a Central African ethno-linguistic group likely originating in modern-day Cameroon. In the mid-first century BC, the Bantu people, who brought with them knowledge of agriculture, began a major expansion and migration, taking them from Cameroon across the majority of sub-Saharan Africa, from modern-day Liberia and Senegal in the west, to the tip of South Africa and Madagascar in the east and as far as Ethiopia and the headwaters of the Nile in the north. However, the Bantu people are not the first people to occupy the Congo. As we will discuss in future episodes, the African Pygmy tribes and likely a cousin culture of the well-known Sanor Khoisan, the people of Southwest Africa, lived in the area before Bantu expansion. These groups were likely suppressed, killed off, or outcompeted by the Bantu people who brought with them, as I stated previously, knowledge of agriculture, which did not exist in the Congo Basin prior. Hey, Austin editing at WorkVoice here. Uh, as a quick note, the use of pygmy in reference to the small-framed African hunter-gatherers dates to the early 19th century, in English first by John Barrow in Travels into the Interior of Southern Africa from 1806. Up until the 1860s, though, scarcely anyone believed in the existence of these, quote, African dwarf tribes, until the phenomenon was documented by respected figures in the world of Western science, though. Uh, specifically when Dr. George August Schweinfurth documented Central African foragers in his 1873 book, The Heart of Africa. In 1996, it was reported in an anthropological survey that there was a universal, quote, disdain for the term pygmy among the aforementioned peoples of Central Africa. The term, much like dwarf tribes, is considered a pejorative, and people prefer to be referred to by the name of their respective ethnic or tribal groups, such as Bayaka, Mbuti, and Twa. However, as there is not a complete historical record that took any of these things into consideration, we will occasionally continue to reference certain groups with that name when no other identification is available. There have been many consequences to the exoticization of the people of Central Africa, many of which we will explore in depth later on in the series, but it is important to note that the so-called pygmies are not a different species or race. All modern Eurasians, for example, descend from a group of less than 1,000 people that left East Africa around 70,000 years ago. There's more genetic diversity within Africa than there is between any existing group outside of Africa. The gene for white skin likely didn't even evolve until around 7,000 years ago or earlier. The othering of Central Africans has contributed to their suffering, and so it's important to note that, before we move on, that their height is not indicative of some kind of significant genetic difference or, you know, worthy of complete categorical separation. In the 14th century, the Kingdom of Congo was born in that patchwork of city-states along the Gulf of Guinea. The small kingdoms of Mbata and Mpembakasi were bound together by a local lord, Nimi Nozima. Nazima became the first king of Congo in 1390, a nation that would be among the kingdoms of Africa and the largest natively ruled country in sub-Saharan Africa until decolonization in the 1960s. 
The Kingdom of Congo was a largely agrarian society reliant on slave labor from conquests and tributes of neighbors and textile production for economic output. Congo did not engage in much mining or extractive industries such as logging on a large scale. This changed in 1483 with the arrival of the Europeans, specifically Portuguese explorer and colonizer Diogo Cao. The king of Congo at this time, Nzinga Ankuwu, made a decision that many kings, lords, and populations refused in the face of European expansion. He converted to Christianity after meeting with the explorers, priests, and meeting with Cao himself. It is unknown if Nakuwu's heart was truly moved by the words of the Bible, as Portuguese historical records would suggest, or if Nakuwu saw the ships moored off the coast and made a shrewd political calculation to save his crown and his people from the horrors of colonial conquest and warfare. Nevertheless, Congo became the first Christian nation in sub-Saharan Africa, with Nakuwu deciding to take the Christian name Joao I, which is Portuguese for John. In honor of the king of Portugal at the time, Joao II. By the mid-16th century, the Kingdom of Congo became one of the major hubs for the transatlantic slave trade. Congolese merchants sold few, if any, slaves outside of the Congo itself before European contact. And yet, as quickly as 1502, Congolese merchants were selling between four and 5,000 slaves to the Portuguese and Spanish per year for New World exploitation. This is at a time when the European population in the Americas numbered in the few thousands, maybe. This number only increased over time, with the Congolese economy becoming both increasingly dependent and increasingly strained by the slave trade. By the time the English banned the slave trade across the Atlantic by force in 1807, roughly 5.7 million Africans were kidnapped or otherwise stolen from their homes and enslaved in the Congo Basin alone. This did not end the slave trade, however, and an unknown number from the tens of thousands to the low millions were probably smuggled out of the Congo Basin until at least the 1920s directly for the purpose of enslavement. This most likely continues today at a very low intensity. By the 1620s, the Portuguese came to the conclusion that dealing with a middleman, the Kingdom of Congo itself, was much more difficult than an attempt at outright conquest, and between 1622 and 1648, the Congolese and Portuguese fought three different wars in which Congo allied with and employed Dutch military forces in their aid at one point. Um, that's some extreme foreshadowing for people at home with the Low Countries. By 1670, the Kingdom of Congo was greatly reduced and not much more than a shadow of its former self. Broke from war and the ban on slavery, the nation was restive and went through a rapid series of leaders during the 1700s. From outright Portuguese puppets to warlords who attempted to cull any and all European influence with violence, the Congo remained nominally independent until 1857, when it formally became a protectorate of Portugal, thereby ending the Congo's nearly 500-year history as an independent nation. With this context established, we now turn to the northernmost reaches of the Kingdom of Congo's influence, the Congo River and the Congo Basin itself. Looking now at the shattered Congo Basin region, ravaged by the slave trade, colonial expansion across Africa, and ruthless exploitation of the land, people, and resources, we meet maybe one of the greatest villains of history, Belgian King Leopold II, a gigantic piece of shit so evil that even contemporary European leaders hated him despite engaging in their own genocide and colonial conquest. Leopold II came to power in 1865. He was determined to build an empire for Belgium by any means. 
Decided in 1885 at the infamous Berlin Conference, Belgium, and by extension Leopold himself, was granted a massive swath of territory, totaling to the majority of the Congo River watershed, over 900,000 square miles of land. It is today the second largest country in Africa and the 11th largest in the world. Leopold set out on building himself an empire, cynically renaming the territory the Congo Free State. The Congo was not a part of Belgium itself, but a personal possession of the king. In a personal union with Belgium, this meant the Congo is not subject to Belgian law. The Congo Free State became one of the largest scandals of the early 20th century. With the 1899 release of the Joseph Conrad novel Heart of Darkness, which offered a bleak first-hand critique of European colonialism based on Conrad's own experiences in the colony, the killing blow was landed by the 1904 Casement Report by British consul Roger Casement, which pulled back the curtain on the horrific, extractive, coercive, and downright genocidal actions of the incredibly destructive rubber, ivory, and mining corporations sanctioned by Leopold personally. We're going to now give a list of crimes committed and sanctioned by Leopold II in the Congo. This is your trigger warning for essentially everything horrifying that will happen in this episode. Sexual assault, genocide, violence, and exceptional amounts of death. I'm serious, if you're unsure of how you'll be able to deal with this, please refer to the show notes below for a timestamp that takes you beyond this list of events. But be warned, some of the things referenced in the below list may be brought up again in the remainder of this episode, or again in the future. So, among the atrocities committed by Belgians under the personal direction of Leopold include Enslavement. Enslavement was absolutely rampant in the Congo Free State with millions of Africans enslaved on rubber plantations and at mines across the territory. It should be noted that in Article 12 and 23 of the Belgian Constitution of 1831, which was in effect during this time, um, specifically prohibited impeding on the freedom of the individual and guarantees the right to self-determination, which is understood by Belgian constitutional scholars to equivocate to a prohibition or outlawing of slavery. Um, Mutilation, failure to meet quotas of rubber or other extractive goods, was punishable by death. The Congo Free State was the world's number one producer of rubber for much of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. To prove a punishment was carried out, the Belgian Force Publique, which is the equivalent of a national police or think of it like the National Guard in America, was required to provide the hand or foot of the victimized African person. In time, rubber, rubber quotas were in part paid by the severed hands and feet of still-living Congolese people who were permanently disabled, provided no medical care, and forced to continue to work on the rubber plantations until they eventually died. Baskets of severed hands and feet were presented to Belgian authorities in lieu of rubber when quotas were down, and victims were left to live or die depending on the mood of the Belgian officer during doing the collection. Cannibalism This is one of the more psychologically strange things that came out of the Casement Report, as well as multiple other international observers who were embedded among amongst the Belgian force public or just in the colony itself. Belgian troops would on occasion kill a Congolese worker and cook and eat their heart, limbs, or other internal organs. Um, there is no known punishment exacted on the perpetrators found in our research for this. If anybody at home finds that, please, please let us know. Um, child colonies. Leopold himself personally sanctioned the creation of so-called child colonies in which orphaned Congolese children, who were usually orphaned by the Belgians themselves, 
would be kidnapped and sent to Catholic missionary schools in which they would learn to work or be soldiers. More than 50% of the children sent to these schools died of disease, and thousands more died in forced marches. These were the only schools funded by the Belgian government in the Congo at this time. Mass rape. Much like the more well-known and infamous rape of Nanking, Belgian soldiers, officials, bureaucrats, and settlers were known to commit acts of individual as well as mass rapes of entire villages, towns, and plantations. Multiple gang rapes were noted in a myriad of reports, reports including casement, where women and children were raped until they died. Mass murder, again in a scene akin to Nanking, entire villages and towns would occasionally be wiped off the face of the earth, all the inhabitants slain, the women usually mass raped, and any remaining structures were raised to the ground. These events were usually precipitated by something as small as a personal slight against a Belgian official or officer, a missed rubber quota, or a perceived threat against Belgian rule. The Congolese historian Isidore Ndewel Nziem um, estimates that 13 million Congolese died during Leopold II's personal rule of the Congo, with estimates ranging between 5 and 20 million total people killed. For context, the total estimated population of the African continent during this time was between 90 and 110 million people, which means that Leopold II was personally responsible for killing between 4 and 11.8% of Africa's total population, and up to 1% of the entire world's population at the time. Um, and another note for reference for everyone at home, when possible, we will defer to Congolese historians, as this is their history and it's not a European's history to whitewash, and we should not necessarily trust Belgian or Portuguese sources. The entire time Leopold personally ruled the Congo, the international outcry against his rule grew and eventually reached its breaking point. In 1890, George Washington William, a black American, published an open letter to Leopold about the abuses he personally witnessed in traveling to the Congo. In an open letter to the United States Secretary of State, he described conditions in the Congo as crimes against humanity, the first such use of the phrase which would later become key language in international law to this day. Public outcry grew in the United Kingdom after the Stokes Affair, when an Irish trader was summarily hanged without trial for quote-unquote illegal trading in the Congo, with the officer who ordered the hanging acquitted in Belgium. By this time, international pressure was mounting on Leopold, who created the Commission for the Protection of Natives, which did little and made few efforts to reform the state. In 1906, the book Red Rubber was published by E.D. Morrill in the United Kingdom. The book, which outlines the atrocities of the rubber slave trade in the Congo, reached a mass audience and an international outcry exploded. Among members of the campaign against the Congo Free State were Mark Twain, Joseph Conrad, Arthur Conan Doyle, as well as the emergent Belgian socialists, led by Emile Vandervelde. It was this series of events which inspired the British to send Roger Casement to the Congo, and his eventual report. In 1908, international pressure from around the world, especially British, American, and German pressure, Belgium formally annexed the Congo Free State, creating the Belgian Congo. Conditions for the indigenous population improved dramatically. 
However, many officials who worked in the Free State retained their positions, and with the imposition of a heavy set of taxes, indigenous Congolese were forced to find work for European employers, many of them on the same plantations that enslaved them. We will further explore the legacy of the Congo Free State, and especially the legacy of Leopold II in a future episode, but for now, let's turn to the officially annexed Belgian Congo. By the metric of the Congo Free State, was much better place to live for the indigenous Congolese, and the Congo became integral to Belgian efforts in the First and Second World Wars. With thousands of Congolese serving in various capacities in the Belgian and other allied militaries, with the small Congolese army achieving several victories of their own against the Italians in the East Africa Campaign. The colony was integral in providing uranium to the United States for the atom bomb. The Congo was run according to the Belgian colonial trinity of state, missionary, and private company interests. This meant that Belgian commercial interests dominated colonial life, and vast swaths of the Congo became specialized in certain industries with the colonial government breaking strikes and removing barriers raised by the indigenous population. After the Second World War, the Belgian Congo rapidly urbanized, with major population centers expanding rapidly, especially the capital at Kinshasa, then called Leopoldville. By 1950, the indigenous Congolese middle class was the largest of any African colony. This leads us to the fires that would spark independence. By the late 1950s, the pro-independence movement in the Belgian Congo would reach a fever pitch, and in 1960, the Belgian Congo was granted independence and changed its name to Republic of the Congo. In May of 1960, the Movement National Congolaise, MNC from here in, led by Patrice Lumumba, won elections across the nation resulting in Lumumba being sworn in as the very first Prime Minister of the Republic of the Congo. Lumumba is regarded as the father of Congolese independence. He was a pan-Africanist, a fervent supporter of African independence, and he was a socialist leader, though he never ascribed any direct ideology to himself. The day after Congolese independence, on July 1st, 1960, the Congo joined the United Nations. Within two months of independence in the Prime Ministry of Lumumba, multiple cascading events began that would lead to Lumumba's death and the absolute destruction of most of the Congo's infrastructure and industry. Firstly, a breakaway southern region named Katanga declared independence as the State of Katanga. This was a barely legitimized puppet of the Belgian and American uranium mining interests, which were largely controlled by former Belgian military officers. This was followed by the breakaway state of South Kasai and the breakaway Free Republic of the Congo based in Stanleyville. This caused the 1960-1965 through 1965 Congo Crisis, a period of civil war and power struggles that would absolutely decimate the Congo. Second. Belgian and American intelligence took advantage of this power struggle between Prime Minister Lumumba and President Joseph Kazavubu to give massive financial support to a third rival, Army Chief of Staff Joseph Mobutu, the eventual 30-year dictator of the Congo. An anti-communist, he used this money to pay his soldiers to join him in a mutiny and foment a coup against Kazavubu and Lumumba. With political turmoil now taking hold, 
Lumumba was eventually confined to his home, where he attempted to maintain control and operated as if he was still the Prime Minister, meeting with government representatives and making announcements. On December 1st, 1960, Lumumba was captured by Mobutu's troops. While attempting to make an escape, he was imprisoned in an army camp that was made to await trial for quote-unquote inciting rebellion. Under immense pressure from within his own government, the CIA and Belgian intelligence, on January 13th, Mobutu gave the order that Lumumba was to be handed over to the breakaway western puppet state of Katanga. Lumumba was taken to Katanga on January 17th and brutally beaten and tortured upon his arrival. Later that same night, Lumumba was driven to an isolated area where the Katangan President Shambe and Katangan Police Commissioner Franz Verscher were waiting. Under the command of Belgian mercenary officer Julian Gatt, he and four other Belgian mercenary officers prepared for the execution by firing squad. Around midnight, Gat ordered the firing and Lumumba was executed. The following day, Belgian Gendarmerie officer Gerard Suet and his team dug up Lumumba's body, dismembered his corpse, and dissolved his flesh in sulfuric acid, grinding and scattering his bones. Almost immediately, there were protests around the world at the announcement of Lumumba's death. Belgian embassies were attacked by protesters, and a protest at the UN in New York turned violent. The Belgians and the United States were immediately implicated, and in time, documents were released in Belgium and the US that proved the United States was involved. In the years after Lumumba's death, the Congo continued to play out the Congo crisis, eventually resolved under the leadership of Mobutu in 1965. He renamed the country Zaire in 1971, which it remained until 1997. Under Mobutu's authoritarian rule, Zaire remained relatively stable with limited mutinous activity. The short-lived 1977 and 1978 invasions by Congolese rebels based in Angola were repelled by French, Belgian, and Moroccan troops. Mobutu continued to garner significant financial and military support from the United States and Europe as a bastion against African communism until the end of the Cold War when faltering Western support eventually led to the collapse of Mobutu's absolute rule. By 1994, he agreed to share power with political rival Kengo Wadondo. However, scheduled elections never occurred. In the late 1990s, ethnic tensions from the war and genocide in Rwanda spilled over into Zaire. Rwandan troops and rebels went back and forth over the border and engaged in warfare on Congolese territory. Zarian armed forces eventually engaged in genocide against the Tutsi ethnic minority in the country themselves. This would lead to the First Congo Civil War of 1996 to 1997, which would begin as a Tutsi resistance genocide. This resistance grew into a big tent revolt against Mobutu himself. By May of 1997, talks between the rebels and Mobutu broke down. On the 16th of May 1997, Mobutu left Zaire never to return. He died in exile in September of that year, ending roughly 37 years of Mobutu exercising power over the Congo. His replacement, Laurent Desire Kabila, proved to have almost no ability to manage the affairs of the now stricken Congo. Political enemies in Uganda and Rwanda funneled money to Congolese warlord Jean-Pierre Bemba, 
with Angola, Namibia, and Zimbabwe in turn becoming militarily involved in the Congo by 1998. In July of 1999, the legitimate government of the Congo signed a ceasefire with the five intervening powers. However, Congolese rebel forces did not, and war continued until 2003 with millions left displaced and hundreds of thousands dead. In 2001, President Laurent Kabila was assassinated. He was succeeded by his son Joseph Kabila, who immediately called for peace. War ended with a power-sharing agreement in 2003. However, Ugandan and Rwandan troops still occupy parts of the Congo on their borders to this day. As we move towards the present day, the Democratic Republic of the Congo remains unstable, poor, and utterly shattered. Plagued by ethnic and ideological conflict, the DRC is home to well over 100 different armed groups in conflict with one another, making policing and administering this massive territory almost impossible, even with the world's largest UN peacekeeping force in the country. For all the trauma the Congolese people were made to suffer through at the hands of Belgium, to this day, only one official apology has ever been issued by the Belgian royal family. On June 8, 2022, King Philip expressed his, quote, regrets for the violence, exploitation, and racism, end quote, that occurred during the colonization of the Congo. Previously, the king and the Belgian government outright denied any wrongdoing. A few years earlier, the French also issued a brief apology. It's worth noting, though, that uh, none of these countries or actors involved offered any sort of reparations, reparations yeah. or anything like that. No material assistance. The French did offer reparations to slave owners who had to, you know, give up their plantations and they also demanded reparations from Haiti, but that was mm -hmm. a, you know, Which different Haiti thing. Haiti didn't pay off until, what, 2006? Yeah, so, I mean, their that's... Debt, their debt to France. Well, yeah. well, everybody, this concludes an incredibly dense, heavy history lesson in brief on the Congo Basin. While we could talk for hours and hours about each event outlined here, this should provide you, the listener, at least a basic background on the stage we've set for this series. Right now, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, things are not good. We want to make it clear during this series that we are aware that the needs of people come first, and we would all much rather see a child have a meal than a fence be put up to keep that child from picking fruit in a national park in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. As we go through this series, we'll be talking about the myriad ways in which primatology, conservationism, and human sociology have to interact and mix in the maze that is Congolese politics and on-the-ground realities. If you have any questions on any of the topics we've discussed today and would like to know more, check out Professor George's Ngolasa, The Congo, From Leopold to Kabila, A People's History, as well as his other works, Le Mouvement Démocratique au Zaire, 1956-1996, and of course the book titled simply Patrice Lumumba. Feel free to send us any questions, concerns, or comments you may have to our email, GorillaRadioShow at gmail.com, or just DM us on Twitter or Instagram. If you ask us something we decide is particularly interesting, we may speak about it in a future episode. One more thing, guys. I know, because I wrote the script for this episode, that there's essentially nothing in this about primates at all. Um, I apologize for that. I promise the episodes after this, everyone will be very focused on primates, primatology, ecology, and conservation. Again, this episode was written to provide um, for everyone at home a ton of important context as to what we're even talking about. Promise I won't be like this every episode. I truly hope you guys have enjoyed it, and I'm looking forward to next time. 
Yeah, and just like a brief comment, like all of the history lessons here are very intertwined with the ways that conservation is performed in the Congo today. Um, there's a lot of things we will come back to reference, including the fact that, you know, the land tenure laws that were instituted by Belgium were the basis for national parks being formed in the first place. But, you know, that's just a little teaser of the episodes we have coming up. Um, so, yeah, the the follow up to this episode two should be coming out in about two to three weeks. So keep an eye on your feeds for that. And you can find all of us on our Twitters. I'm at Moon's Gift. And uh, I'm Austin at Piss Vortex on Twitter. You can find me on Tumblr as well. You can't find me. Go check out at Gorilla underscore underscore radio on Twitter. And that's, that's as close as you're going to get, folks. Yeah. With that being said, we'll see you next time. I can't do I don't have a better. <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs>